The title of this class is called Restless Pilgrims. And before the world knew us as Christians, we were called followers of the way. And so in this class, we're going to explore that reality is what does it mean for us to be followers of the way? We just saw the opening sequence to the movie The Way starring Martin Sheen, where Martin Sheen plays an eye doctor living in Southern California. And as we find out, he learns the news that his son, Daniel, has died at the beginning stages of the Camino Santiago. So Tom decides to go to Spain. Uh, and when he gets there, he wrestles through what he's going to do about this. And in the middle of the night, he approaches and goes to the chief of police in this small town in the south of France. And he says that he wants his son, uh, who's died, to be cremated. And he wants to continue the journey that his son started. That he is going to walk the Camino Santiago. Um, this here is a map of northwestern Spain. And if you see at the St. Jean, I don't know how to pronounce the rest of that. That's, that's, that's where Daniel is going to, uh, I'm sorry, Tom is going to begin his journey. And he's going to embark on a 1,500-kilometer trek, and he'll be joined by other pilgrims, or pellegrinos, as they're called. In particular, he's going to be joined by three other friends who will travel with him over the course of this journey. Now, the Camino Santiago um, has become sort of a generalized pilgrimage for people, but initially, about over a thousand years ago, the Camino was started with the intent of walking to the site where supposedly, as legend would have it, the bones of St. James are buried. And today there's a, a beautiful, magnificent cathedral in Santiago, Compostela, where those bones lay entombed. So Tom and his fellow travelers, his fellow pilgrims, uh, will experience uh, a variety of terrain and meet a variety of people, people who come from all over the world uh, for all different reasons, all kinds of backgrounds, all different languages are there uh, to experience and walk on the Camino Santiago. Uh, they'll receive this at the start of their journey. It's a passport, and the idea behind this is that as the pilgrims make their way along this trek, they want to have uh, valid proof that they've actually traveled the 1,500 kilometers, which takes roughly around five to six weeks to travel, depending on the time of year and, and the amount of people and, and the pace at which the pilgrims walk. Ultimately, so they can get to the city of Santiago and receive a passport, I'm sorry, a certificate that's written in Latin that verifies that they've made this walk. Now, as I said, the terrain that they're, they're going to cover will be as varied and diverse as the people that they're experiencing. Some of what they see will just um, absolutely blow their mind. It will be breathtaking. Other aspects of this journey will be like this. It just feels like they're walking and walking and walking and walking as they travel through valleys. Um, they'll encounter places of rest, where they'll share great meals, some of which uh, with people that they know and others with complete strangers. Uh, they'll stay at, at hostels along the way. Uh, sometimes they'll, they'll camp out. Uh, they'll travel through cities. They'll travel along roadsides. They'll travel through places of death, through cemeteries, uh, arid places like this. Ultimately, again, with the goal of reaching this enchanting, medieval city called Santiago Compostela. And so these are statues of pilgrims greeting the weary travelers as they make their way into the city. 
Uh, this is getting closer to the city, and you can see in the distance right here, this is the beautiful cathedral uh, in Santiago Compostela. As we get closer, this is uh, the cathedral itself, and it's, it's the point of the destination. Now, Daniel and his, I'm sorry, Tom and his fellow travelers um, talk about what it means to be a pilgrim, and they have a discussion that's built around this idea of, you know, there's all kinds of people that travel this, and some that travel this journey, they travel it on bikes. Should you really do it on bikes? And a true pilgrim is someone who foregoes something like that, and they only take what they need with them. And it's this discussion that they have about being a true pilgrim versus being a tourist, someone that's just sort of spectating or watching. Jack Hitt uh, is a journalist, and he was living in New York um, up until he was around 35 years of age, and he decided what he wanted to do was walk the Camino Santiago. Now, this was something that was sort of a shock to himself, particularly his family and his friends, because Jack was raised as a Christian but decided to uh, put away his faith. But for a variety of reasons, he felt compelled and had a need to want to walk the Camino Santiago. And he said, you know, in in getting prepared for this trip and in thinking about the word pilgrimage, he said, you know, as an American, I think we have a a thin understanding of what the word pilgrimage means. You know, our, our experience in America is one of trailblazing and pioneering, but with making a pilgrimage... Uh, it's something that demands something of those that walk it. And often when we think of the word pilgrimage, we may say, well, you know, my uncle wanted to go and visit the site of his favorite musician, Elvis, and so he went and made pilgrimage. He went on a pilgrimage to Graceland to pay his respects to the king. But what Jack Hitt says is that a pilgrimage is something that, that a person has to submit themselves to its rhythm, that there's a fixed path with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a marked destination. He says this, it's a marked route with a known destination. A pilgrimage was about sweating and walking and participating in something. What do you think draws people to making a pilgrimage like this? Perhaps beyond just this idea. When you think about the many people every year that, particularly in the Muslim faith, that, that travel to Mecca or other sites like the Camino Santiago, be curious to hear your thoughts just for a moment. What is, it, what is it that you think compels people to do something like this? Thoughts? Spiritual fulfillment? Yeah, bud. I think it's because they know that they're not where they belong. That there's, a, there's a restlessness of our heart, and we know this is not where we belong, and so they feel like, it's like a, you know, why the animals migrate. Yeah. Kind of a primal sense of this is not who we really are. Yeah. Gives them a gives them a means to kind of wrestle through some of those answers. Yeah, other thoughts. Lust for adventure. A lust for adventure. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I, I also think people think it's it's a good thing to do in their life. Like yeah. Something to just sort of check off their life list. It's interesting because uh, Tom and his friends will pass by. Um, men who are, who are carrying crosses and flagellating themselves as they're, as they're walking and making Camino, in a sense trying to recreate what Christ did um, on Calvary. John Ng says this, pilgrimage speaks to a deep need within the human heart, that in the story, in the film, The Way, all of these travelers are there for deeply personal reasons, and though, and though those reasons can vary greatly, they also share 
some strong commonalities. And I'd like to propose to you that one of the things that draws people that's a compelling force to the experience of and the participation of a pilgrimage, whether it's something like the Camino Santiago uh, or others that people have been making for quite some time, is it taps into this reality of the experience of a journey, that it's a tangible representation that life is a journey. Now, when you hear that expression, life is a journey, that's probably something that you've either talked about or have heard about or have experienced in your waking lives and and how people come to interpret and give meaning to the experiences of their day. So whether it's the journey of my career or the journey of this athlete who comes back for a second chance, it's, it's commonly used. And we think of it in terms like this, right? Life is a journey, not a destination. I mean, how often might we say that to ourselves or to other people to kind of provide interpretation to their experiences? We see it in places like literature. We are all travelers on a cosmic journey. Paul McCartney in a song lyric, but still they lead me back to the long and winding road. In literature and film, from The Lord of the Rings, it's a dangerous business going out your door. You step into the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there is no knowing where you might be swept off to. Even, even as a screenwriter, the, the, the structure, the narrative structure that we use, it's been used for the past several thousand years, is built around this idea of a journey. Well, where does this come from? Where does this idea originate? If, if journey has become so synonymous with the human experience and how we understand things, does it have a particular origin? And tonight I'd like to make the case that yes, it does have a particular origin, and that actually greatly informs how we understand our faith. Eugene Peterson, in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, talks about how there are systems in the world, particularly in the age that we live in, the modern age, that make it very difficult to experience clarity as believers in understanding our faith and living out our faith. And he says that there's really two ways, two, two metaphors that he's used as a pastor to, to help his parishioners be guided through the experience of being a Christian. So he says this, for recognizing and resisting the stream of the world's ways, there are two biblical designations for people that are extremely useful, disciple and pilgrim. Now, disciple is something that we're probably maybe a little more familiar with or comfortable with. Uh, rightfully so, Jesus, we're, we're, we're called to, to make disciples, to become disciples. Discipleship is talked about often, rightly so, necessarily so. But the second word, being a pilgrim, is something that we might feel is, well, perhaps that's reserved for folks that want to spend the rest of their lives in a monastery, or there's something about it that might feel sort of foreign or distant to my own experience. But Eugene Peterson argues that this is a helpful designation for us to understand some of the the streams of the world that are competing for a right understanding of our Christian faith. He goes on to say that Pilgrim tells us we are spending our lives going someplace. Uh, Pastor and author Jim Belcher, who has a rather unfortunate last name, um, (laughs) pastored a church in Southern California for about a decade. And after that time, he and his wife wanted to go on sabbatical. And what they wanted to do was to spend about a year living abroad in Europe with the purpose of revisiting some of the sites of some of the, their quote-unquote heroes of the faith, if you will. And one of the reasons they did this is because they had a concern that reflects this concern that Eugene Peterson has for his parishioners 
about one of the primary streams of opposition that Christians face in, in, in really living out a faith of depth. And he calls it moral therapeutic deism, that it's this idea that, is, that he felt like his kids were surrounded by this toxic cultural air of, you know, if there is a God, if, if he or she exists, or if they exist, or whatever, that their whole point is to make us happy. Like, we, 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 we in our lives, should be about happiness, and God or whoever is about making us feel happy and being comfortable— and they were really concerned about that and concerned about how, perhaps how that was maybe infiltrating their kids' understanding of their faith. So what they did is they went to Europe for a year and they spent time in places like Oxford where they visited the home of C.S. Lewis. They spent time near the home of the, the great social advocate William Wilberforce. They went to a small community in the south of France, uh, or in France, I can't remember exactly where, um, where a community there battled the Nazis in terms of their resistance to the Nazis. They spent time near the home of Corrie ten Boom in Amsterdam. And, 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 and Jim really wanted to wrestle through this with his kids. What does it mean to live a deep faith? And he says this. He quotes John Ng in his book, In Search of Deep Faith, and, and he says that uh, the nature of a pilgrimage uh, really takes on greater and deeper dimensions um, than perhaps we might initially give it credit for. And he says, a pilgrimage is characterized by three things. A rediscovery of our roots, an understanding that life is a journey, and a new focus on our true destination. And that is the heart and the premise of this class. If it's true that we are pilgrims on a journey, and that our lives are going somewhere, then to better understand our faith and our lives and some of the events of our lives, what's happened in the past, what's currently happen, happening, and what uh, will most likely happen in the future, it's important to look at where we came from. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at some stories from Scripture and what they can teach us about being on journey. We're going to look at some stories from history um, and also some contemporary examples of people that are living today that are wrestling some, through some of the same things that we're wrestling through. We're going to talk about life being a journey. If it's true that we're on a journey, and if a journey like the Camino Santiago has certain facets to it, there are valleys, there are deserts, there are, there are beautiful vistas, there's walking through places of death, then our journey, too, should have a particular terrain to it. So we're going to look at some of the major terrain that we uh, have probably encountered over our lives and will most likely encounter over the course of our lives. And then we're going to talk about what does it mean to have a true destination, because a journey isn't just about the journey, it's also about the destination, and that is important for us as believers. In the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, we're, we, we hear these words, stand at the crossroads and look, ask for the ancient path, ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. So we're going to, in a sense, make a pilgrimage in this class. We're going to look at what are those ancient, what is that ancient path that has existed since time began, and what does it mean for us to, to travel on that? Let's go over uh, the class uh, and just what, what we're going to expect over the next six weeks. Um, I didn't say this up front, but uh, you guys, I know it's such a huge commitment for you to be here on a Wednesday night, so we're all, the staff and I, we're all just really appreciative that you're making the commitment to be here. I know it's a big, big uh, move out of your schedule, so, so thank you. Um, and, and more than anything in this class, the hope is that you have a deeper relationship with Christ as a result of going through this. That's really the ultimate hope. 
Today we're going to talk about the journey beginning and what does that look like to be on journey. Next week we're going to look at, okay, if we are pilgrims, what does that mean? That there's, there's, a, there's an ongoing wrestling match between being a spiritual tourist and a true pilgrim, and that we're kind of caught in the middle of that, that we're, in a sense, restless pilgrims where we're making this journey forward, but we're also looking back. We're going to explore the idea that our lives mirror, in a sense, the Exodus pattern in the Old Testament, how we're, we're continually playing that drama out in our lives. The third week, we're going to talk about this idea. If it's true that we're on the journey and the journey is long, how do we keep our hearts along the way? How do we not grow cold and cynical and bitter and that our lives is just about walking and walking and we just walk? How do we keep our, our hearts along the way? And Scripture offers us some pretty interesting insights. Week four, we're going to talk about how much of life is lived in the valley uh, and how we have these valley experiences of life and what can that teach us about living along obedience in the same direction. The fifth week, we're going to talk about those experiences of life where it doesn't seem like the path is even there, like it's just gone and we're plunged into the darkness. Or we're going to explore the idea of the dark night of the soul. The sixth week, we're going to talk about um, what does it mean if we have a, an ultimate destination? What does that mean for how we live life today and over the course of our lives? What does it mean to come home every day? The disciples in the New Testament asked Jesus, Master, we have no idea where you're going. How do you expect us to know the road? Jesus answers, I am the road, also the truth, also the life. So as we begin with any journey, we have to start at the beginning. And this is what we have to continually do as believers. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to read to you a sort of... um, interpretation, if you will, of the beginning of our journey, of the beginning of our story. In the beginning of all things, there was a way to live, a way to be a man, a way to be a woman, a way to be in relationship with our creator, with each other, with ourselves, and with creation. It was the way of intimacy, love, truth, purpose, security, and adventure. It was the way of being human, of being fully alive. It was real, and it was true. Yet in the midst of this wonder, a disturbing presence emerged. Though remarkably similar to the other creatures, this figure moved with a relaxed audacity that was completely foreign. It had the voice of chaos and called into question the trustworthiness of the way. Is this truly the only means to live? There must be better things in store if you don't believe everything this creator has said. Consider being an equal to God. Experience the pleasure of his power. Distribute omniscience amongst yourselves. The proposition chaos offered was so alluring, almost hypnotic, to think man and woman were capable, apart, on their own, from their creator, to shape their destinies. The possibility of harnessing the divine power was irresistible. At first it had an exhilarating taste. A new, empowering sensation was aroused. And then a bold tremor reverberated through their beings, and for a moment they experienced the seat of total authority. But the taste, the sensation, the experience was too much to bear. An unceasing nausea gripped both man and woman. In the place of the fleeting enthusiasm they experienced, man and woman now understood something that was previously unknown. Their lips would one day have a word for it. Pain. Ironically, in trying to pillage the thoughts of God, they took a devastation that was never supposed to be theirs. What was once radiantly clear had become distorted, a precious beauty devastated. Chaos usurped the benevolent order and violated the breathless harmony of all things. The man struggled with himself, with his woman, and his children. 
He drank the bitter cup of failure and toiled underneath the excruciating weight of futility. The woman knew agony, her safety replaced with loneliness and heartache. Their once everlasting land became poisoned by an endless famine of mortality. A shadow of death hung over all things. Beneath the now wilting leaves, the man and the woman hid from their creator, from each other, and even from themselves. Shame overcame them, wrapping its exhausting tentacles around their once certain hearts. And they began to learn another way, one of fear, cruelty, self-protection, cowardice, and pride. In their ruinous despair, a familiar voice called out to them. As he once did, their maker sought the creation he so highly treasured, who he shared in conversations with, who he cared for. In love, the creator came. In protection, the creator covered them. And in wisdom, he imparted man and woman with the final words ever spoken in their garden home. Their portion was to be a severe mercy. Their numbered days would ache. They would live and they would die. But the maker would not leave them on their own. As he once did, as he would do again, their creator would show them how to live, how to be a man and how to be a woman. They would learn to love and to be in relationship with their God and each other. He would guide them and those that came after them along that remembered path. Though at times it would be difficult, almost impossible to see, they would find the way that had always been theirs. Their lives would be defined by this journey, one that would reclaim what had been lost, one marked by love, and one that would ultimately lead them home. What are the first questions that God asks of his creation after the fall? You remember what the first questions that God asked of his creation, Adam, after the fall? Where are you? Why are you naked? Or who told you that you were naked? What is this that you have done? The, the, three, the, the first three questions asked of creation after the fall. And so as we see in the beginning of our story, in the beginning of the journey, that there are really two paths that are offered to creation. The first was the way, the path of life, the path of intimacy, of connectedness, of harmony with all things. And then the serpent enters into the story and he proposes a new path, a new way. And in ancient cultural context, the serpent was seen as a picture of chaos. And so when the serpent engages with Eve and, and, and in turn Eve engages with Adam, he's provoking and disturbing a settled presence. And so chaos is initiated into the picture. And we have two paths, a path of life that's proposed by the creator and then a second path a path of chaos. And Jesus talks about this path in the gospel in which he says there are two paths. There's the, the wide path that leads to destruction that most travel on, and then there's the narrow path, the path that leads to life. And so we're going to talk a bit about each of those paths and what they mean for us as travelers along the way. So let's take, um, let's take about a five-minute break, and then we'll jump back into this. See, it says break. <laughs> That's for me. Yeah. Okay. Sorry to cut you guys short here. I always have to be the de facto party pooper in these things. My apologies. You know, I, I always hate it when I, when I taught. I taught for a number of years, and I would show... 
clips from movies. I'm sure some of you felt like this if you if you hadn't seen the movie The Way. Which, by the by the way, I would uh, I would recommend that you if you can uh, watch it. Um, it's it's a great film, really personal film too. Because um, for those of you that don't know, Emilio Estevez, his dad is Martin Sheen, and um, they share a, they have a shared faith, um, and they made this film together, and he. Uh, had this cool experience of making this movie with his dad. So it's, it's a great film, great soundtrack, um, and we're going to be talking about some of the things from the film. Um, okay, so back into it. The first person that we're going to look at tonight uh, is a primary character in Scripture. He's recorded in the book of, of Hebrews as being a hero of the faith. He is someone who's a patriarch of three of the world's major faiths, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. Uh, and for many, he's sort of a, a, a largely looming, larger-than-life figure. And you hear the word Abraham, you think of Father Abraham, the father of many nations who was just completely bold and unrelenting in a radical faith. And in many respects, that's true, right? Uh, he did exhibit uh, incredible faith. Uh, Hebrews testifies to that fact. Um, but what's, what's important to know is, is Abram or, was a man... Uh, an ordinary person just like you and I, and that his, his, his participation in the journey in the way is, is quite significant because he was one of the first to walk it. In particular, the covenant that, w- that God would make with Israel uh, in establishing uh, a renewed humanity. So let's talk about Abraham, or Avram, as he would have been known uh, in, his, in, in the first iteration of his name before all of these experiences happened. And what his story can teach and inform us about being on a journey, that our life is on a journey. Well, Avram lived uh, over 2,000 years ago. Uh, He was a man of Ur, his city, a Sumerian. And Avram was a successful businessman. Uh, He had indoor plumbing, and he was a highly practical individual, as were his colleagues of the day. we look at Abram and we think he was someone who lived in antiquity in a polytheistic context, so there was the worship of gods and goddesses. But for Abram and his contemporaries, those gods and goddesses might be kind of in the same breath as someone who was a head honcho at a networking group. That if you wanted to have a certain success in life, if you wanted to achieve that, you would have to pay the proper dues to the proper deity. So if you were a farmer and you need your crops yielded, you would make a particular sacrifice to the god of... Uh, of the fields, or if you're hoping that your wife would get pregnant, the goddess of fertility is who you would, you would pay your necessary respects to. Uh, and so Avram lived under, under this belief and under this view of life, that gods and goddesses were there in a sense to, be, uh, to, be, to manipulate, to get what is needed. Um, and he lived under uh, the dominating influence of this. The wheel. Uh, no, not Michelin tires, but uh, the wheel was what, what guided every Sumerian's outlook and understanding of life, is that the way a Sumerian, the way someone like Avram would look at the events of their lives and what their lives meant was dictated by this symbol. Thomas Cahill, in his book, The Gift of the Jews, says this uh, regarding antiquity. All evidence points to there having been in the earliest religious thought a vision of the cosmos that was profoundly cyclical. No event is unique. Nothing is enacted but once. Every event has been enacted, is enacted, and will be enacted 
perpetually. Try saying that really fast. The same individuals have and will appear at every turn of the circle. So what is he saying? Simply this. If you lived, if you were a friend of, of Avram, you understood that life was you're born, you live, and you die. You, you, you're born, you live, and you die. And it just, you know, people are kind of on this, this, this hub, and it just goes round and round. And when it's your turn to experience life on earth, well, that's what you do. You're born, you live, and you die. Your time is done, and it's, it's the next folks and the next folks, and it just keeps going round and round. This is our circle of trust, right? Um, history was kind of seen as irrelevant. The past was sort of unimportant, for those that it was important, the rulers of the day, the kings, would look at the past as, as sort of a, a necessary tool to create bloated PR, com- PR campaigns about themselves if they wanted to lie about a particular battle. Well, who cares? The past is irrelevant. Anyways, history doesn't really matter that much. We can do as such. Um, and the future itself, well, you know, there's sort of this distant thing out there. Um, and so this is the world that Avram lived in. You're, you're, you're born, you live, and you die, and it just goes round and round and round. Well, uh, imagine, if you will, that um, Abram is walking home one night, and he passes by an abandoned lot. And in this abandoned lot that was probably a construction site for a particular deity that the project got folded because the proper permits couldn't go through, and so they had to fold on this construction project, so this this temple was never going to be built. Uh, Abram hears a voice, and this voice is something that is both uh, authoritative and tender. It's both foreign and deeply intimate. Uh, and this voice introduces himself as Yahweh. Now, Avram, being the practical businessman that he was, uh, was sort of shocked and perhaps experiencing a little bit of humiliation because he had never heard of this particular deity. I've been to all the meetings. I know who to make the proper sacrifices to. Who are you? And it was surprising for him, to say the least. And this deity, Yahweh, uh, begins to explain to Avram that he, he, has, he has something for him. He has a promise for him. And we hear this promise in Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 through 4. Now the Lord said to Avram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So, so he tells Abram, you have to leave and go to a land that I will show you. I'm not going to tell you now what that land is, but go and that land will be revealed to you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So he's called out by Yahweh. He's called out to embark on this journey. He's given a promise of blessing. His name will be blessed. His lineage will be blessed. And many after that uh, will be blessed because of this decision. Now, we hear this, we think this is, this is you know, this is, again, this is an applause for the faith that this man had. What Thomas Cahill, the historian, points out to us is that this, was, this decision was entirely radical. The Jews were the first people to break out of this circle. You're, you're born, you live, you die, to find a new way of thinking and experiencing a new way of understanding and feeling the world. 
So much so that it may be said with some justice that theirs is the only new idea that human beings have ever had. So he's actually, uh, Thomas Cahill is actually quoting this, this gentleman here. So Avram lives in the world of the circle. The circle dominates his understanding of life. Yahweh introduces himself, asks him to leave, to go on a journey, to follow him, and he's going to bless him. So we now have a new way of looking at life. A journey begins, one in which is a, a point in history, and it's moving forward, and this deity is asking Avram to go with him, to participate on this journey. Two stories now. The story of the wheel, the story of the circle, this is one way of looking at life, or the other, a story of a journey, that there's a fixed path that you, I'm calling you to make, you'll be the first on this path to make, and many more will come after you, and I'm going to show you and those that come after you what it means to live uh, life as living along the way. What was God doing here? Well, a number of things. But what's important to remember is that, that this covenant that God was making with Abram was establishing a covenant of, I'm going to create a renewed humanity. When I first began the earth, when I created the earth, there was a way to be a human being. There was a way to be in a relationship with God and with each other and with creation. And I'm going to remake that and renew that again, and that's going to happen through you. But there was a problem, as Thomas Cahill points out. In addition to their family members and chattel, they took their Sumerian outlook. Abram left his home, but he took with him the understanding of life lived beneath the circle. And we see this play itself out a number of times, where uh, Abram um, doesn't trust, doesn't fully trust that God is going to come through uh, for he and his wife and the promise that they'll have a child. And so he and, and, uh, and Sarah decide that um, he'll, he'll sleep with her maidservant so that they can have a son because they're, they're growing older in years. Um, Abram performs cowardice when he and his wife um, are in Egypt. And so he's living out the core values of life lived under the circle. And if it's true that you're, you're born, you live, you die, well, then what does that mean for people who live life under the circle? Well, it means that life really is about self-sufficiency, self-protection, self-promotion, and self-preservation. It's really about the self. And so this is, this is the sphere of living life amidst the circle of chaos. Uh, and th- this, is, this is the baggage of belief that Abram carried with him as he was becoming Abraham. God gave Abram a number of things in this promise, uh, and one of which was he gave him a new name, Abraham, the father of many nations. In ancient cultural context, naming conventions were everything. They held a prophetic weight over a person that, in a sense, determined their destiny or had a, a large shaping hand in determining their destiny. He was asking Abram to leave behind the counterfeit way of looking at life, of life lived beneath the circle, and instead to embark on a journey with him, leaving behind a false identity, a counterfeit identity, and he was going to give him a real, a true name, a true identity, Abraham. So he was asking him to, to leave behind this, this system of, of false thinking and to enter into a new system where he would become his true self, leaving behind a counterfeit self, a counterfeit way of living to become uh, who he was destined to be. Okay. Now, we think of this and we hear this, and some of us may be kind of just rolling through the backs of our minds going, all right, that's interesting. I maybe never knew that the wheel played this much significance in history, particularly how people understood their lives. That's kind of cool. Thanks for the anecdote. 
Um, but does this have really any, para- does it have any sort of resonance with how we live our lives today? And I would like to make the case that yes, it does. In fact, our world, particularly in the West, is a lot closer to Abraham's world, uh, at least in Ur, than one might initially think. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, uh, the first is this, is that uh, we now live increasingly in a culture uh, that believes what Dr. Peter Jones of the Truth Exchange says, that there's really two competing narratives that vie for our hearts and minds. And he calls it the oneist, twoist dichotomy. The oneist dichotomy says this, is that all of us are sort of connected within the divine, that there's really no ontological separation between God, goddess, whatever is up there, and creation, and, and men and women. There's no, there's no distinctiveness in creation. They're all kind of on an equal playing field. Plants and a baby and a dolphin and a deity, we're all kind of wrapped up in this idea together. And the second competing narrative is to us, that there actually is a separate, there are separate parts. There's ontologically separate parts. There is a God and he has creation. There are men and women with unique differences. Creation is separate and unique from uh, man and woman. Uh, and that this, these, these two competing narratives are continually at odds with one another. Let me just read some more of uh, some of the implications of this, of this, this idea of oneism. What, is this, what does this mean? There is no distinction between God, the creator, and creation. There is no distinction between God and humankind. Spirituality does not humbly look outward to God for salvation, but arrogantly looks inward for enlightenment and morality. There is no distinction between good and evil. There's no such thing as timeless moral truths. There is no distinction between angels and demons. All spirits and spiritualities are considered good. There is no distinction between mankind and angels. There is no distinction between men and women. There is no distinction between religions. How often have you heard that all paths are okay, just choose the path that's right for you. This is from Mark Driscoll's A Call to Resurgent, um, which I know will raise some eyebrows when I'm quoting Mark Driscoll. Um, so, uh, how does this play a little bit more home even still? Right? We have some ideas that are presented in academia from the pulpit. Well, I'd like to share with you what are some of the implications of living life beneath the chaos of the circle? What does it mean for those who have not yet embarked on the journey of the way and for the rest of us that are still struggling as restless pilgrims between uh, the circle and living life on journey. The first is, is sort of fun and lighthearted. Uh, let me read you some lyrics from a very popular song. From the day we arrive on the planet and blinking step into the sun, there's more to see than can ever be seen, more to do than can ever be done. There's far too much to take in here and more to find than can ever be found. But the sun rolling high through the sapphire sky keeps great and small on the endless round. It's the circle of life, and it moves us all through despair and hope, through faith and love, till we find our place on the path unwinding in the circle of life, the circle of life. So Mufasa tells Simba, listen, one day you're going to be grass, and that's cool because the zebras need to eat you even though we eat the zebras. And you're all going to get this, you know, right, right away immediately. Yeah. Let me take it uh, another step further um, through another song, a popular R&B song written in 1966 titled What Becomes of the Brokenhearted, uh, written by William Witherspoon, Paul Reiser, and James Dean. The lyrics go like this. 
As I walk this land of broken dreams, I have visions of many things. Love's happiness is just an illusion filled with sadness and confusion. What becomes of the brokenhearted who had love that's now departed? I know you can hear the song as I'm saying it. And forgive me for ruining the song for you. I know I've got to find some kind of peace of mind, maybe. The fruits of love grow all around, but for me they come a-tumbling down. Every day heartaches grow a little stronger. I can't stand this pain much longer. I walk in shadows, searching for light, cold and alone, no comfort in sight, hoping and praying for someone to care, always moving and going nowhere. Lastly, I'd like to share a passage from George Orwell's 1984, uh, in which uh, he talks about uh, a brutal understanding of power in terms of living life beneath the circle. If you haven't read it, 1984 is a dystopian novel about um, set initially in 1984, that there are three warring states, always at odds with one another, and that this is ultimately the end philosophical game of looking and understanding at life. Um, This is coming from the perspective of one of the leaders of this uh, barbaric movement, and he's sharing with his now prisoner, captive, what life should and will look like. The old civilizations claim that they were founded on love and justice. Ours is founded upon hatred. In our world, there will be no emotions except rage, fear, triumph, and self-abasement. Everything else we shall destroy, everything. Already we are breaking down the habits of thought which have survived from before the revolution. We have cut the links between child and parent and between man and man and between man and woman. No one dares trust a wife or a child or a friend any longer, but in the future, there will be no wives and no friends. Children will be taken from their mothers at birth as one takes eggs from a hen. The sex instinct will be eradicated. Procreation will be an annual formality like the renewal of a ration card. We should, um, our neurologists are at work upon it now. There will be no loyalty except loyalty to the party. There will be no laughter except the laugh of a triumph over a defeated enemy. There will be no art, literature, no science. When we are omnipotent, we shall have no more need of science. There will be no distinction between ugly and beautiness. I'm sorry, beauty and ugliness. There will be no curiosity, no employment of the process of life. All competing pleasures will be destroyed. But always, do not forget this, always there will be the intoxication of power, constantly increasing, constantly growing subtler. Always, at every moment, there will be the thrill of victory, the sensation of trampling an enemy is helpless. helpless. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. So we start with something that seems, you know, fairly lighthearted with this idea that we're all just kind of fertilizer for each other in the end. And then we move to something like this, is that the living out the implications of life beneath the circle is something where it ends up in the complete dehumanization. You see, if there is no separateness, if there is no distinction, if, the, if things don't have a particular weight to them, then who's to say what should and shouldn't be destroyed? And so this is, this is life lived beneath the circle. And as Avram was called out, so, so are we being called out of the primary values of life lived beneath the circle, those values being self-sufficiency, self-promotion, self-protection, that these are the values of life lived beneath the circle. And if you think of those who you know in your life who, who don't know the Lord, this is, this, this is this, the guiding spheres of how they live and understand their lives. And it's often said that our world is a highly secular world. And the word secular means present. It means now. And think of a lot of the people that you know that don't know the Lord. So often, it's, this, is, this is really kind of how they live their life, right? The past is, is important in a sense, but it's sort of irrelevant. 
But if this is all that we have, then we've got to make this count. And this is life lived beneath chaos. Uh, we're going to take a break, then we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about a contemporary figure who can help us to take a, a few steps further in our understanding of leaving life lived beneath the chaos of the circle. So we'll come back in about five minutes. You guys want to uh, uh, come back to your tables? Very so quickly. <laughs> zip it, zip it, zip, zip it. Um. <laughs> I wish it was as cool as MMA. No, I was, I was. Uh. So the story, if, if you haven't heard it, it was pretty embarrassing, actually. Um, I the, the reason we had to cancel the last class is because. Um, I work out at this this boxing gym. I'm I'm not a boxer. I don't compete or any of that. Though I wish that that would be kind of cool. Um, and I got a uh, I was I was in a sparring ring and I shouldn't have been sparring. It was sort of a stupid guy thing to do because this guy was like, "Hey, dude, you want to spar?" I'm like, I'm thinking, no, I shouldn't be doing. It. Okay, yeah, I'll totally spar with you. And uh, and got got hit in the head. And I I knew right when it happened that something was. I I never experienced quite a quite a quite this kind of. I've had a few concussions before, which may explain a lot about me. Um, but uh, it was weird. For you know, I visited the doctor, and he said you can't read or watch TV, um, and you have to minimize your computer work for like four to six weeks. And I even had to go on thought breaks. Like there were times I couldn't think because it, it hurt so bad, which is good for someone like me because I tend to overthink about things. So uh, it was a really, it was a really, it was a really surreal experience. And I'll share some of that and kind of what God God taught me that taught me some things through. Uh, through my um, through my experience and relationship to developing this class, so but all is uh, hopefully well uh, since then. Okay, um, so in his book *In Search of Deep Faith*, I introduced this author, pastor Jim Belcher. Uh, one of his first stops along his own pilgrimage with his family was visiting the home of the Kilns, where C.S. Lewis lived uh, with his brother for for most of uh, his adult life. It's where he wrote books like *The Chronicles of Narnia*. Um, and uh, Jim had the unusual experience of being able to spend the night uh, at the kilns. And so just thinking about Lewis's life, Lewis's experiences, what he, could, what he could garner from this man of a towering mind and imagination who's influenced so much of Christian thought over this past century, what were some things that he could really learn? And, it, and one, one, of, one of the things that he saw was something that really surprised him, uh, something that he didn't fully expect from C.S. Lewis. Lewis, as you may know, was uh, an avowed atheist uh, uh, as a young man, and he was good friends with um, the author and uh, fellow professor J.R.R. Tolkien, author of books like The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And Tolkien had an interesting way of engaging with Lewis about uh, his faith. Tolkien, a devout Catholic, would, would pose this question to Lewis. He would say, okay, what is it, Jack, uh, C.S. Lewis's friends called him Jack. He said, what is it, Jack, that you love more than anything in life? And, 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 and uh, Jack said, well, it's the stories that I spend time in. It's the stories that I tell. And Tolkien says, well, what if, what if all these stories, all these myths that you study, what if they actually point to one myth and that myth was true? And that, that was a really important conversation for Lewis because he really started to think that, um, that perhaps the story of Christianity, which he thought was and wrestled with this idea that it's a myth, is actually true. What did that mean for him? And so he and, and Tolkien really devoted the rest of their lives to wanting to tell stories that would change the world. And they did just that. Uh, Tolkien with The Lord of the Rings and Lewis and books like 
Chronicles of Narnia, The Great Divorce, um, The Screwtape Letters, The Abolition of Man, and others. Um, and Lewis uh, was someone who uh, was quite popular in his time. Uh, he was an acclaimed author, acclaimed speaker. He spoke on radio broadcasts. He was a voice during World War II. He talked about important things like, do we, do we as Englishmen, should we or should we not experience and, and, and be a part of education? Learning during wartime was one of the broadcasts he gave on the BBC. Uh, he was just wildly popular, wildly successful. Um, and even though he was the kind of person who would respond to every piece of fan mail that was sent to him, and he would pray over it every single time, and he was someone who had a, a really sweet, winsome, engaging, humorous side to him. He liked to play practical jokes on people when they came to visit, so he would tell folks that the, the bathtub was actually the toilet when Americans would come to visit, just because he liked to, to, to have fun. And he had a really terrific sense of humor. Uh, but Lewis struggled with pride, uh, and it's something that he talks about in this. Uh, in his book, In Search of Deep Faith, um, Jim Belcher says, in the early 1940s, Lewis knew that he was struggling with pride. Uh, this, is, this is, you know, during the years of his popularity. We get a glimpse of this in his BBC talk, The Great Sin, during which he says, I wish I had got a bit further with humility myself. If I had, I could probably tell you more about the relief, the comfort of getting rid of the false self with all its look at me and aren't I a good boy and all its posing and posturing. And you may say to yourself, well, come on, maybe he's just being too hard on himself. I mean, this is C.S. Lewis that we're talking about. He was, you know, he, he had this uh, incredible way about him, which he did. But Lewis keenly understood the nature of the human heart. And he deftly uh, unpacks those realities in books like The Screwtape Letters. But one in particular uh, is The Great Divorce. And he talks about, in The Great Divorce, the premise of The Great Divorce is the story of, the fictional story of a group of men and women who live in Greytown. And Greytown is a picture of hell. They live in hell, they live in Greytown, and they're given the chance to take a bus ride. Now remember, this is Lewis's sort of interpretation on, on, on hell and, and heaven. They're given the chance to take a trip to heaven to see if they want to stay. In Greytown... If you're, an, if you're a ghost who lives in Greytown and you get tired of somebody, all that you have to do is move. You don't have to put up with them. You can move miles and miles away. So one of the interesting features of Greytown is people don't really live next to each other because they don't want to put up with each other. And folks struggle with things that they've always struggled with in life, but those things overtake them. Those selves that weren't who they most truly were when they were created, those false selves, those pictures of posing and posturing, those things that were vices, were sins, those are the things that ultimately become the full manifestation of this person. So if you were someone who, let's say, you were a general in a war and you lost, you would spend all of eternity obsessing over the loss of this battle because that's what was most important to you really in the end. Why did I lose this? How could I lose this? I could, I could, have, I could have figured out this. And so he has these interesting portraits of, of people who were damned to their own devices, in a way something that would be probably far much worse than, than fire itself. So these people take, so these ghosts that decide to go on this trip, they get to, to heaven. And when they approach heaven, they meet the spirits who occupy heaven, the people that live in heaven. And when they first arrive to heaven, what they discover is that heaven is more real than anything that they've ever experienced. In fact, to step on a patch of grass is almost like stepping on diamonds or sword blades because it's more real than anything that they've ever experienced. 
And what Lewis uncovers for us, what he explores in The Great Divorce, is this idea that as the occupants, as those people that are making this journey to get closer to where God resides, which in, in, this, in this imaginative take on heaven is up in the mountains, that it's a, it's a bit of a difficult journey because people have to become more real as they're making this journey. As they get closer to God, they, in a sense, become more real, but they don't have the complete material manifestation to do such. What did Lewis understand and what did Jim Belcher understand in his experience of, of staying the night in the kilns and looking closely at Lewis's struggle with pride and how Lewis reflected this struggle um, in this BBC broadcast? Well, it was this, that like Abram, when Abram was called to leave the circle of chaos and enter into a journey of purpose, of meaning, of beauty, of truth, and freedom, is that God was asking him to leave behind a counterfeit self, a false self, this wasn't really what I had in mind when I made you. This is posing and posturing. All of this is really your attempt to vainly live under the chaos of the circle. And when he calls Abraham out, when he called Clive Staples Lewis out, when he calls each of us out, what he's calling us out of is a false self, something that's not, that's not, that's not ultimately real. It doesn't have weight. It doesn't have glory to it. And so God is calling us to participate in the process of living life along the way of experiencing a renewed humanity. Now, sadly, often when we think of becoming a Christian or what does it mean to be a Christian, we may think that a Christian is someone who doesn't listen to this, they don't watch this, they do drink this, they don't eat that, they don't associate with this, rules and regulations. And, and some of that is important and necessary, right? Um, but but it's, it's more than that. What Lewis reminds us, what... Uh, the experience of living life on a journey is this, is that being a Christian is the fullest expression of what it means to be fully alive and ultimately what it means to be human. Being a Christian is really ultimately what it means to be a human being. And that God had in mind when he created the world that this is what a human being does. They experience love and joy and peace and they live in freedom and in harmony with, with God the creator and with each other. And that God is calling each of us to live that out every day of our lives. That he's calling each of us to leave behind the chaos of the circle that says life is about self-protection, self-sufficiency, self-promotion. But rather, life is about intimacy, adventure, love, purpose, beauty, and freedom with your creator and with each other. And that as you walk along this way, you're going to become more real. See, being a Christian and being human is about being more real. That the more we follow God, the more we walk on this journey together, we're becoming more alive and we're becoming more real. Um, Romans, uh, in the book of Romans, in one of my favorite passages, talks about this truth, this reality. C.S. Lewis. Um, Let me read from Romans chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, and then 18 through 20. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, um, oh, excuse me. 
going to verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is our destiny, that life lived along the way is about the ongoing revelation of who we, who we really are, who God had in mind when he made each of us. So in closing, um, what I'd like to, to ask each of you is, is to consider over this next week and over this class and really over the course of our lives is to look at going before God and saying, God, what are the features of my false self? What does that look like? And how are you, what are you doing in my life to liberate and heal me from those, those, that, that, that picture of the false self, that old man or old woman that we're constantly at war with? What does that look like in my life? And what are you up to in bringing about healing and ongoing restoration uh, with me? We're going to talk more about some of the ways that God does that, some of the, some of the unusual, difficult, uh, joy-producing ways that God does that in our lives. Um, but I think that's a great place for each of us to start and to always go back to is, God, who am I really? Once I've been redeemed and restored by you, who am I really in you? Sadly, we often say, I'm just, you know, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, you're not. You're a child of the king. You are loved, and you, are, you have a destiny that is fixed and a future that is fixed. And we are much more than just sinners saved by grace. We have a, a true and a final destiny, and God is continually using this journey to reveal that uh, to us, uh, to each other, and to the world.